Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We pray, O oh God, that your voice would be stronger than all of the other voices in our life. And we pray that your voice would break into our hearts to bring us hope and encouragement and joy. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so many of you, if you were here last week, you know that we began last week the great chapter on the resurrection. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the afterlife. And so this morning, we're going to be kind of exploring together that question, what happens after I die? Now, this is a fascinating question. I think it's, it's captured the, the attention, the imagination of, of many, many Americans. In the last decade, there's been this flurry of books that have been written on the topic of near-death experiences. And many of these books have uh, become New York Times bestsellers. There was one book uh, written a while back uh, by uh, a guy named Todd, uh, I think it's named Todd Burpo, and it was about his son who supposedly died at the age of four on the operating table and had these incredible kind of experiences. And there has been other books that have been written by many others. This book was so popular that it became a, uh, a movie. <laughs> and, um, and, and of course, some of the, the accounts of near-death experiences have been put into question and many have been discredited. Uh, but there have been other books that have been written by more reliable witnesses. And so, for example, uh, there was a book that came out by Dr. Eben Alexander. Uh, the title of the book was called Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. And then there was another book that came out about 10 years ago by Dr. Mary Kelly uh, called To Heaven and Back, A Doctor's Extraordinary Account of Her Death, Heaven, Angels, and Life Again. And what's interesting to me as I was reading this week about near-death experiences is just how common many of these kind of experiences are. Uh, in the 1980s, the Gallup Poll Agency conducted a wide-ranging survey. They published their results as, quote, Adventures in Immortality. That's a good title, isn't it? And it found that 15% of Americans who almost died reported some kind of out-of-body experience. 15%. And that 11% said that they entered into another realm, 8% encountered spiritual beings, and interestingly, only 1% had negative experiences. And it's fairly common, you know, there was a, a peer-reviewed journal that was published uh, recently, it's called the Journal of Near-Death Studies. There is an academic journal of near-death studies, and it reported that 48% of the population had near-death experiences. And there was another state from Belgium that said that of those experiences, 69% included a bright light, 64% interacting with other spirits or people, and 80% feelings of peace. Now, I don't know how, what you guys think about these kind of near-death experiences. I don't even really know what I think about them. I do find them interesting. It's kind of fascinating to kind of like read about what these people have experienced and kind of explore it. But it does raise the question for us of the afterlife. And this is not an unimportant question. I was listening to a pastor this week and he said this, and it captured my attention. His name's Kerry Newhouse. He said this. He said, most people give more thought and planning to where they will spend their next vacation than where they will spend eternity. 
And I think this caught my attention because I just got back from vacation, actually a vacation that I spent a great deal of thought and planning on. It was for my 20th anniversary, and Alicia and I uh, went to, yeah, you can, we made it through 20 years, yeah. Uh, but Alicia and I went to um, a Kauai, which is where we spent our honeymoon. And so we went back to kind of relive some of our old experiences. Uh, this is actually a picture of us when we were uh, newlyweds, honeymooned to your left and then to your right. Uh, that's us today, kind of the same spot. We did a few pictures like this, kind of reenacting some of our original experiences. I did notice when I was looking at this picture that my wife looks almost identical today as she did 20 years ago. And I look like I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years years. <laughs> but you know, I spent a great deal of time and thought and planning on that vacation. I dreamt about it. You know, you guys, some of you are into this sort of thing. I mean, I, I, I looked for, for, you know, I spent hours and hours looking at Airbnb and VRBO and then looking at, you know, Google and, and uh, uh, um, Yelp and all this stuff to find the best places to eat and the best hikes to do and, and all this stuff. And then once all of the trip was secured, I would go back sometimes at night when I was feeling stressed out from work and I would go back and I would just look at the pictures of the condo that I was going to stay at. Anybody else do that sort of thing? You just kind of, you plan the vacation and then you just start imagining the vacation and dream about the vacation. But I wonder how many of you, how many of us in this room give a similar kind of planning and reflection on the afterlife. You see, what we believe, the, the vision that captivates our imagination about the future has everything to do with how you live in the present. And over the next few weeks, we're going to explore that claim because Paul here is talking to us. He is giving us a vision of the future. And so this morning, we're going to explore what he says about the future resurrection of believers. Now, this uh, topic, you know, th this is fascinating. I mean, this is arguably the most fascinating discussion in the history of the world on the topic of bodily resurrection. And we're going to be walking through it today. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're kind of investigating Christianity, this is interesting stuff. In fact, I have a book called A Brief History of Thought. It's a philosophy textbook uh, by a French philosopher, a well-known French philosopher named Luc Ferry. And he claims that, um, and he's not a believer, he's a secular humanist, but in his section on Christianity, he says that one of the most significant and unique features of Christianity that gave it staying power for almost 1,500 years in Western culture, it's kind of like the dominant worldview, was its understanding of the afterlife and the powerful, profound effect that it had on people who embraced this vision. And so we're going to kind of explore together what it is, <laughs> you know, and what the Bible teaches about the afterlife. Now, before we jump in, I need to make a distinction from what, of what the Bible teaches about the afterlife. And we could draw a distinction in this way. The Bible speaks both about life after death, in other words, what happens immediately when a person dies, and it also speaks about life after life after death. And so the Bible speaks about what's called maybe the intermediate state, when a person dies. And it has very little to say about this state. Paul says things like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
He speaks in the book of Philippians about his desire to depart and to be in the presence of Christ. He speaks in other places about being asleep in Jesus. And that's an intermediate state. But at the end, at the end of time, there's something else that's going to happen. And it's what the Bible refers to again and again as the resurrection of the dead. And this is an important distinction because I think most Christians and most Americans, when they think about the afterlife, they primarily think about life after death. But the New Testament wants us to think about life after life after death. And I think what you're going to see this morning and in the next couple of weeks is that life after death is good. It's brilliant. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But life after life after death is way better. Because what life after life after death, what the resurrection of the dead implies, what it declares to us is that God ultimately will be victorious over sin and death and darkness. That the verdict of the oppressors in Rome, Caesar and Pilate, that they rendered over Jesus will be overthrown. And that death itself will be defeated and God will make everything new. But I think when we start talking about resurrection of the dead, I think for a lot of us it does raise some questions because what are we even talking about when we talk about the resurrection of the body? Because, I mean, what about decomposition? And what about uh, cremation? How does that all work out? I mean, how does bodily resurrection work anyway? And what age will I be when I'm resurrected? I mean, how does this whole thing work out? And we aren't the first people to have these kind of questions. In fact, the church in Corinth was asking questions about resurrection. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Many of them said, look, we're okay. We're down with the idea that the body is the prison house of the soul. And when we die, the body is going to be cracked open and the immortal soul is going to escape to go be with God in heaven. But the idea of a resurrected body, that sounds a little crass and a little strange. What are we to make of this? And so many in the church were denying it. And Paul writes to help them understand, he helps us, help us understand resurrection. And he essentially says three things to us in this text that we're going to kind of look at this morning. He says, first, when you think resurrection, think Jesus. When you think resurrection, think Jesus. Jesus. Now, as a pastor, I have been a part of a lot of funerals in my life. And there's been a lot of uh, funerals I've attended, a lot of funerals I've presided over. Uh, Funerals are kind of a part of the occupational uh, challenges of a minister. And there's kind of a common narrative that I hear people say at funerals. And it goes something like this. Maybe you guys can identify something like this. Uh, Somebody will stand up and they'll say, Fred was a great guy. Fred was such a good guy. We know that Fred, you know, he's finally ended all of his suffering. And now Fred, because he was such a great guy, is in a better place. And when Fred lived on the earth, Fred loved golf. And now we know that Fred is there on the eternal greens in heaven, golfing to his heart's content. But Paul would say, when you think afterlife, when you think resurrection, don't think golf, think Jesus, think Jesus. 
It's interesting, before he get, launches into this long, lengthy discussion of the end-time resurrection of the dead, he begins with the resurrection that happened in time in the resurrection of Jesus. And look what he says in chapter 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Now stop there. Paul, in effect, says in this text, Christianity is not first a religious idea or an ethical system or a spiritual experience. Christianity, first and foremost, is grounded in an event that happened in human history, namely the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's his point here. The third day, that's a day on the calendar. He was buried in a tomb. That's a place you can visit. And he names eyewitnesses. Those are people you can talk to. And why? Well, because Jesus was not just raised spiritually from the grave. Jesus was raised physically and bodily. And this is the foundation of Christianity. If you remove the resurrection, the entire thing implodes. And that's why Paul in the next verse goes on this tirade. Look at what he says, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead who he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in this earthly life we have only hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He essentially says, look, if if Christ was left in the tomb, then the center of Christianity does not hold. Christianity is a lie and darkness wins and death gets the final word. But, he says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, the oppressors, the unjust tyrants, death itself and darkness do not win. Love wins, God wins, and he overturns all of the powers of sin and death and darkness. And then he says this. This is fascinating. He says, but if Christ has been raised from the dead, notice he's now going to tie the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of all who belong to Jesus at the end of time. And he says this, if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. You know, when you go see a movie, And you go into the theater and the lights go down. And what's the first thing that comes on when the lights go down? The previews, right? It's the commercials for the next movie. And in the preview, you get a foretaste of what's going to happen when you go see the entire full-length film. 
And what Paul is saying here is that the resurrection of Jesus is a preview. It's a foretaste of what God is ultimately going to do at the end of time. Just as Christ was raised physically and bodily from the dead to never die again, just as God rendered his verdict over Jesus that love wins, righteousness wins, the hate, the cruelty, the darkness, the verdict of Caesar and Pilate does not win. It's been overthrown. So too at the end of time, the event of Jesus' resurrection in history guarantees the resurrection of the dead at the end of history. So he says, when you think resurrection, first think Jesus. Just as God raised Jesus physically, bodily from the dead to never die again, so too God at the end of time will bring to life all of those who trust in Jesus. Now, this still raises the question though. What exactly are we talking about though? I mean, what do you mean resurrection of the dead? The literal translation of that resurrection of the dead could be resurrection of corpses. Now, when you think about resurrection of corpses, what comes to mind? Zombie apocalypse, right? Like walking dead. <laughs> and so Paul knows that, and, so, and he knows that the, 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 the question that's going to next be asked is, how does this all work out? And notice that's the question the church in Corinth asked. I think it's a pretty good question. It turns out Paul doesn't like it that much. Look at what he says, verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? That seems like a reasonable question. And what kind of body do they come? And Paul says, you naive, foolish person. <laughs> and then he says, look, when you think resurrection, think seed and harvest. He says, when you think resurrection, think seed and harvest. And now he turns us from the resurrection of Jesus to the world of nature. And look at what he says, verse 36. He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed his own body. Now, when I was uh, fairly newly married and my wife and I had uh, a little young family, Alicia decided that we were going to start a family garden. Now, I grew up in the city. I'm a city boy. I never planted and grew anything growing up. And I remember my wife said, uh, we're gonna, I said, what are we going to grow? And she said, we're going to grow sunflowers. And I looked at her and I said, how do you grow a sunflower? And she said, with a sunflower seed. <laughs> True story. I'm like, sunflower seeds? They become... I, I just thought they were salty and you ate them. You know, I didn't know you could plant the things, but... But you look at this, you look at the seed and the harvest. And on one level, there's continuity, and on the other, there's discontinuity. On the one level, there's continuity between the seed and the sunflower. Because what is a sunflower but a fully developed and germinated sunflower seed? And yet there's discontinuity because that sunflower seed, that sunflower doesn't look anything like that seed. And Paul says, and so it is with the resurrection. Look at what he says down in verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in, dis it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so he says, look, have, have any of you ever felt like a, you know, like a little sunflower seed, like you are hard and narrow and gray and self-contained and salty? One day, by the power of God, you will be raised into something beautiful and glorious. And Paul turns from the world of agriculture to the world of animals. And look at what he says back in verse 38. He says, but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. And then he says this, for not all flesh is the same. For there is one kind for humans and another for animal and another for birds and another for fish. He says, stop for a moment and consider the embodied existence of a fish and of a bird. And each has their own unique glory, their own unique capacities, and particular unique things. You know, a fish can swim underwater. It's got gills and fins and all of that. A bird, of course, can soar in the air. And their unique embodied existence give them a particular capacity to enjoy and experience the world that God has made. And so too, Paul is saying, one day we will be raised and we will be raised with new capacities and renewed glory in order to enjoy the world that God has made, but it will be an embodied existence. I mean, think for a moment, you have five senses right now, what would it be like for you to have 20? I mean, you are gonna flower in places you didn't know you had buds. Like there's just gonna be a change in us. And Paul says, and consider the heavens. He says, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars and the stars differ from stars in glory. He's saying, look, we are going to have a brilliance and a glory about us. I mean, do you know what you're in for? Do you have any idea what you are in for? You know, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has this brilliant place where he starts talking about, you know, some of us, we just, we just want God to do a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of um, do a little, a little minor home remodel in our lives. But he says, God has way higher vision for you. He's going to tear that old house down and he's going to build a palace because he intends to dwell there. And he says this, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Well, somebody says, but what, is, what, are, what are we talking about? I mean, like, what, what, like what, what are you describing? We're all going to become like glowing stars or something, you know? And um, I, I think sometimes when we think about the resurrection, we can almost think of it like the Avengers, you know, each one of the Avengers has like some superhuman power. And so there is Hulk who's got superhuman strength and there's Iron Man with his special suit and there's Thor who can command thunder, you know. But don't think Avengers when you think about 
our future. Think the beautiful character of Jesus. Always at rest, always at peace with the Father, always a reflection of God's love to others, always full of joy and delight in God and in others and the world. And this gives you a little taste of what we will be in for. Well, somebody says, but okay, there's both continuity and discontinuity, but what will be the same and what will be different? I mean, I don't like my ears, so can I get a new set of ears, or I don't like my waistline, or um, I would just like, you know, we, we kind of have like things we'd like to have different. <laughs> How tall will we be? I did hear that um, uh, academic research has shown that Jesus of Nazareth was actually a 5'6", which apparently is the perfect height of a perfect human being. <laughs> so uh, most of you will probably have to be... But seriously, how does this work? Again, how are the dead raised? N.T. Wright wants us to consider this cheery scenario. He says, consider, for example, if, if a cannibal eats a Christian... And then a little bit later, after eating the Christian, the cannibal becomes a Christian. Now that the Christian's body has become one with the cannibal's body, whose bits will belong to who at the resurrection of the dead? It's a real physiological and philosophical dilemma, isn't it? And I guess one way to answer that question is, is we change our physical kit every seven to ten years. You know, uh, those who study anatomy, physiology, they say that every atom, every molecule, you know, switches out so that we are physically different people today than we were seven, ten years ago. C.S. Lewis says we're like a waterfall. The water keeps moving, but the curve stays the same. You know, I'm physically different than I was ten years ago, and yet I'm still me. And if there are atoms in my chin that have served others, perhaps a platypus or a dog or an eel or a dinosaur... And look, the, whether we get the same atoms or molecules back is irrelevant. You know, as my wife told me last night, she said, you know, you just need the recipe. You just need the DNA, right? Isn't this what we learned from Jurassic Park? But look, I, I don't know the science of it. I don't know the physiology of it, but I do know the theology of it. And here's what it is. Paul says, look, when you think resurrection, think, think God. Look at what he says in verse 54. He says, when perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And then get this, verse 57. Some of you came to church this morning for this verse, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us the victory over death. How can we believe in a bodily resurrection if cremation and decomposition, cannibals and all of this? God raises the dead. Now, I grant there's mystery and there's wonder. But look, there is mystery and wonder at the very origins of existence itself. By everyone's calculations, whether you're a believer or not believer, like there's a, there's a gaping question at the heart of the, the beginning of all things, namely, 
How is it that there's something rather than nothing? And how is the something, namely this universe that we inhabit, how is it so full of morality and ethics and beauty and meaning and stories and music and poetry? Where did all of this come from? And the simple answer that the Bible gives is God. God is the ground of all existence and being. God called all things that are by his own power. And God, by the power that called into being all things, will give life to the dead through the victory that was achieved in Jesus Christ. But here's the difference. In the original creation, God, you know, you think about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing for all eternity past. And at some point... They just decided, why not? And out of an overflow of the love that is the triune God was called into existence all things that are. But when God acts again, it will not only be an act of God's generosity and his gratuity. It will be an act of grace, sheer grace, because what God raises from the dead are people who have sinned and who deserve death. But because Christ came into the world, he bore the sting of death, the punishment of death, so that those who trust in him can share in his victorious resurrection. And so God gives us, by grace, victory over death. And so some of you, you might be in a place where you're like, man, I'm approaching those years in my life. Some of you fear death. And some of you fear death because you don't know what's going to happen to you after you die. You don't know, you know, is God going to want me? Have I been good enough? Good enough is not the question. None of us have been good enough. We're all a train wreck. You are a complete mess. We are accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And our hope in the face of death is not the good works that we've done in our life. The hope in the face of death is God's victory in Jesus Christ, which is given to us, offered to us as a free gift. And so we can hope for the future because of God's God's gracious action in Jesus Christ. I want to close, though, this morning. I just want to return to the first question that I, I, or the first quote that I began with. You know, I said that, um, I listened to a pastor earlier this week who said, you know, some of us, we spend more time planning for our next vacation than we do planning for eternity. And I just wonder for how many of you that might be true. And some of you might be in a place where you just think like, well, I I haven't given this a lot of thought. (laughs) I don't really know what, what I'm supposed to do with all of this. And how do you plan for eternity? I'll tell you where you begin. You begin by entrusting your eternity, you begin by entrusting your future and your present into the hands of God, into the hands of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I know that, that some of us, you know, we kind of wrestle with doubt and you hear this kind of talk and even studying this stuff, I mean, this is mind-stretching claims, isn't it? The resurrection of the dead, the only reason why maybe this doesn't stretch our minds even more is because we're so used to it. 
But this is mind-stretching stuff. And I get it if you're here and you're like, I've got some. Are you sure? That sounds so strange. And can we really believe that? And, And let me just challenge you with something. There is no position you can take in life that doesn't require some degree of faith. Certitude, especially regarding the most important commitments in life, is a fallacy. I was listening this week to a debate between uh, a guy named Brett Weinstein, who is an evolutionary biologist, and uh, he's done kind of a lot of work regarding kind of the evolution, what, what he sees as the evolution of religious belief. And he was in dialogue with a professor of religion and science from Oxford whose name is Alistair McGrath. So they're both kind of talking together. It was just a fascinating discussion. And um, at one point in the discussion, Brett Weinstein said something interesting. It caught my attention. He said, you know, what atheists don't realize, he says, the, the bitter pill that many of my atheist scientist friends need to swallow is that certitude is a myth. He said, to even begin the project of science, you need to take a leap of faith. I mean, who knows? We could all be living in the matrix after all, you know? And how do you know you can trust your mind and the the conclusions you're drawing from? You just don't know. You have to begin somewhere. And of course, that's science. You go to even more important decisions in life like marriage. How many of you had, who are married, how many of you have absolute certitude when you said I do that the whole thing was just going to work out perfect? If you did, you quickly found that was mistaken. (laughs) Marriage is difficult. There's challenges. But listen, you don't need 100% certitude for 100% commitment. And what I want to propose is that you can have, you can have, I mean, Christianity is reasonable. I mean, the reason why there are chairs at the University of Oxford and and people who have taught classes at Harvard and Princeton and all of the rest who affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because it is a reasonable confession of belief. It's because there's evidence. There's reasons why people believe. I mean, there are reasons why people who are absolutely brilliant academics are theists. It's because there's there's a reasonableness to the faith. I'm not saying faith isn't reasonable. But I am saying that if what you demand to give your full commitment to Jesus Christ is certitude, you are barking up the wrong tree in life. You will never have 100% certitude for hardly anything that matters, that's of any significance. And so what it requires is an act of trust, an act of faith, where you say, you know what, God, I, I will relinquish my future into your hands and my present into your hands. And I will receive your gracious gift, this victory. I I do believe that in the end, love, not hate, wins. That in the end, it is the power of God sacrificing love in Jesus Christ and not the power of the tyrants and the oppressors and all of the unjust kingdoms of this world that will have the final say. But God's victory will work itself out in all of creation. Love wins. Jesus Christ wins. And just entrust yourself. Say, I trust you with my future and I trust you with my life right now. Now, of course, that's not just a challenge for those who maybe are investigating belief. That's a challenge for all of us in this room. Because you all live with fears and insecurities 
and anxieties and worries. And you do that because you think at the end of the day, life depends upon you and your own control. And I'm just like what we've heard this morning is the announcement that God has been victorious in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then everything's gonna be okay. 